We apologize that there are some breaks in the audio of this message. There were some technical difficulties during the recording. The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is life about family. Is life all about what we do together, keeping time together, protecting our time together as a family? Um, or, you know, even we're, we're all here, but is life about church? Is life about church programs? Is life about making the church run? Is life about being church together? Is life about our country? Is life about protecting our country? What's, is life about, you know, protecting our own identities or getting as much money as we possibly can. I mean, these are kind of all kind of like low-hanging fruit in some ways of like, what's life all about? Um, what's the meaning of life? And in many ways, these were all kind of the sort of questions that Paul was addressing for the church. Is life dominions or rulers or authorities? All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this is kind of a, like a super dense text. I don't know if you guys kind of like your head just kind of start going, like, I have no idea how to track with all of this, what's being said. So we're, we're just going to ask a few questions because there's a lot going on here. So, Paul, what do you mean by Jesus as the image of the invisible God? What he means is that Jesus shows us everything that there is to know about God. Jesus images God. Everything, God is invisible. He's a spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. But Jesus Christ shows us who God is and what He's like. So if you want to ever have sit, sit down and have dinner with God, you just kind of read about what it was like to sit down and have dinner with Jesus. Jesus shows us who God is. He shows us all the attributes. You know, it's not, I'm not talking about like hair color and eye color and all that stuff. I'm talking about God's mercy. What is God's mercy like? like what is that, that? You know, I understand what it's like for you know, Michelle to be merciful to me because I'm stupid. What is it like for God to be merciful for us because we're sinful? What is it like for God to be compassionate? What is it like for God to be angry? What is it like for God, all these things that we would ask questions about, what are those things like? Jesus shows us not only who those things are, what those things are like, but Jesus actually is God himself. And so it's not like he's kind of mimicking God. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. When Jesus acts, that's what God is doing. So Jesus shows us who God is. So let's ask another question. What is all this discussion about creation? So there's all the, you know, he's before all things, all things were created. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. And at the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. So what, it, what does that mean? You know, we're talking, we're getting into kind of deep waters real quick with this passage because we're talking, like everything that we know is all created. And we're talking about before the creation. So what was all that? So what, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ, the, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, he was the, he was the person that God created things through. When the Father intended to create the world, he created everything through the Son. So everything that's created, it wasn't just kind of created by God in general. God created everything 
And it was the Son who spoke things into existence. When the Father says, I'm going to create, the Son creates everything, and the Spirit makes those things happen. So all three persons of the Trinity are active in creation, and it gets real mysterious, kind of murky waters at that point of like, <laughs> I don't quite understand how that all works out, but I do understand from this that when God says everything was created through the Son, the Son was the vehicle that God created everything through. So it's not, and what that also means is that if God created everything through the Son, that means the Son was not created. The Son was eternal with God the Father through all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God didn't adopt Jesus as kind of like, oh, I'll use this guy to redeem the world. The Son was with the Father from the beginning, and he was the one that God used to create all things, but he was God himself. So I know these are kind of all big categories we're working with, but we're, kind of tr we're trying to lay a foundation to try to understand the world, basically. And if we're going to be <laughs> trying to understand the world, we've got to have some pretty massive foundations. And so this is a big one. Jesus is the one that God used to create everything. And I, I, the illustration that came to mind for this, and this might just be because I'm doing fantasy football with Drew right now, but when Brady, Tom Brady makes a, a goal, he always uses Grunk, right? <laughs> Isn't that right? Yes. So how we always how they always work together? They all, you know, Brady, Brady throws the ball, Grunk makes the the touchdown. When father when the father creates, he always uses the son. So if that <laughs> you're never gonna watch football again <laughs> the same way. <laughs> Uh, you know, you're trying to deal with these things that are like, you know, big, massive categories, and you come up with such a trivial example like Brady and Grunk, but, you know, you have to forgive me. I'm sorry. But so, so the sun was not created. The sun created everything. And so then another question, Paul, what is all this about thrones and dominions? I thought we were talking about Jesus. So right there in the middle of verse 16, uh, he created all things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I think what Paul has in mind is just the, this category of spiritual authorities. So this could be angelic powers, demonic powers, the whole category of, of powers, basically, in the world, of what, you know, how things are run. Um, I don't think he has specifically in mind like a, a political entity in mind. I think he's just talking about angelic and demonic powers and just basically pointing to the fact that all these things that we experience in the world that are powerful and outside of our control, I mean, Bill was just talking about we need to be praying against demonic activity. I, I think we've, we've already experienced that in the church plant. I think we're going to continue to experience demonic activity. Those things are real and they're scary. But those things are under Christ's authority. They're under the Son's authority. And that's what Paul is tipping his hat to in some ways. Of Yeah, there's going to be things that are in this created universe that God's created through the Son that are powerful and uh, intimidating and scary. But no matter good or bad, Jesus rules them all. That's kind of the point. You know, Jesus is over all those things. And that the reality is that there's no ultimate power stronger than Christ. It's everything that exists, and he doesn't just kind of set it off like a clock. Like, oh, I'm just going to kind of wind it up and let it go. He actively maintains everything. In Hebrews 1, it talks about things. the universe is upheld by the power of his word. He upholds everything in a consistent, in a consistent exercise of his power. He's always upholding the universe. He's always maintaining everything that he's created. 
It's all in relationship to Jesus. So this is kind of like a, I know this is kind of a big picture, but that kind of encompasses everything that exists, right? I mean, the air we're all breathing, the songs we sang, the things we're thinking, the lives that we're living, the house that we live in. Um, he's, he's over everything. He's supreme over the whole universe. And what I think this means for us is that in our lives, no matter what we're facing, whether it's scary prospects with our children, health that we don't understand, jobs that seem to be outside of our control, um, a future that is unknown, there's nothing more ultimate in the world than Christ. There's nothing more ultimate in our lives than Jesus Christ himself. And I think specifically there's no terrors, there's no horrors, there's nothing scary in this world that's outside of his control. Jesus speaks with authority and power over all of those things in our lives. All the things that would scare us, all the things that, even the things that we would enjoy. Jesus has authority over all those things. And the good thing about that is that it's not some un unknown God who has power and authority over these things. We know who he is. We know who he's revealed himself to be. We know his compassion and mercy and love and power, his righteous anger against sin, but his compassion on broken and weak sinners like us. We know this God, and that God is the one who controls all things. And so there's nothing that's going to happen in our lives that's more scary or outside of God's control that he can't handle. There's nothing that we have going on coming towards us in the coming year I mean, we're talking about having, like, what, seven hours of sunlight per day. So, I mean, that's kind of depressing. But, you know, there's nothing that's going to be ultimately more depressing that Jesus can't handle. Jesus can speak a power of grace and love and truth in all the things that come in our lives. He, nothing trumps Jesus. Nothing's bigger than him. Nothing's stronger than him. So I think that's kind of, if we're trying to think of, like, how does this foundation change my life? Like, we've got these big pictures. Jesus creates everything. He maintains everything. Everything's under his pastoral, his shepherding, his gentle love and care for us. So these are some, some big categories, but, right, but we've been talking all about the creation, God creating everything through Jesus. So what Paul does is he makes this shift right here in verse 17 over to redemption. And that's what we're going to look at here in verse 18 through 20. Christ is a sacrifice of redemption. So we've been talking about creation. And I, and I think if you are tracking with me, you might start to ask the question, yeah, but, but creation is kind of broken. Creation's like earthquakes and tsunamis and, you know, 20-foot blizzards. You know, these things are kind of broken, you know, if this is what Jesus is going to create, I don't know if I really like that Jesus. I, I think it's an okay question to ask. I think Paul anticipates that question. I think God wants us to ask those questions and hear what God has to say in that. So the second point, Christ is a sacrifice of redemption. So he's talking about Jesus still. And he is the head of the body of the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead then everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, again, this question, what are we going to do with all this? 
this stuff is broken. And how do we find redemption in it? How do we find redemption for a creation that's broken? I think the question actually is to ask, why is creation broken? Because God created everything good. He created it good for us to enjoy and to know Him and reflect His glory. And so for all the, the bad things that we experience, the, the things that are scary, you know, the addictions that are rampaging through the city right now, the broken marriages and families that we're seeing, I mean, literally on our street. How does God speak to that? How is that redeemed? The source of that comes from sin, and that's the, that's the reality we have to work through. Man rebelled against God, and in that rebellion, God put the whole creation, because of man's sin, under a curse. Under the curse of sin, which means it's separated from God. Because, it was, because man separated himself from God, and because man was you know, the ruler of the earth, the whole earth kind of went with Adam and was broken underneath him. So Paul says in Romans 8, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So he's talking about God. God subjected it to futility and hoped that creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation was been, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so the picture is that creation has been subjected to the curse, has been subjected to brokenness. But the creation itself even longs to be free from the curse of sin, longs to be free from the destruction and chaos that we experience. You know, the down on our houses, you know, those sort of things. The creation itself has this, this heartbeat towards redemption that it longs to see in the, ma- the making new of all things that Jesus is doing. But see, the point of what Paul's saying here is he's pointing us that sin is the problem. Sin's the, bro- the, the break. Sin's what, what caused all the brokenness in the world. But it wasn't God. Sin was not God's problem. Sin was our problem. Sin is something that we brought into the world that we reject God. That's how we sin and break, and the world is con- uh, continues in this broken state. But, you see, the Son of God, out of His love and compassion for us, did not leave His creation to kind of sail off into the sunset and burn and die off in the sunset. You know, I mean, He didn't leave this creation on its own. The Son of God took on flesh he took on a human form. He took on the body of a man and took on a real nature. So the Son of God, who created all things, put himself inside creation. He took on creation himself. And this is one of those, again, chief mysteries of the Bible where it's, okay, how, how does God take on human form? We can talk all about that. There's aspects of what that means Two natures, one man. It says here that he uh, took on the form that, it, that God was pleased to dwell in him bodily. So, I mean, there's not a question of whether Jesus was God. Jesus was God in the flesh. But then what he does in his taking on him on flesh, that's the turning point of creation's brokenness. Because Jesus in his life He came to live among men and women who need Him, who are broken and weary and despised and rejecting God. But Jesus lived a perfect life. 
his life was in complete obedience, even though he lived in a world that was absolutely broken, he lived a perfect life and experienced all the weariness and brokenness that we experienced from the creation. And he took our place under the curse of God. He took our place because sin is not just this created reality. It's a, it's a spiritual reality. It's a part of who we are in rejecting God. We, it's not just that we do bad things. It's not just that we kind of commit these bad things every once in a while. It's just that in our inner hearts, we are bad. We are rejecting God. We do reject God actively and continually in our hearts because that's what it means to be sinners. It's not just kind of like you do bad things like, oh, the people who bank rob are like the worst sinners or the people who murder. No, that's why when Jesus came and he preached the gospel, he went to the heart. It's not just that like you kill somebody that you're a sinner. It's that when you lie and hate somebody, you're a sinner. And when you do even good things with bad motives, you're, you're doing, you know, you're broken inside. You're not loving and knowing the goodness of God. Jesus Christ came to live the life that we could not live because we could never obey God from the heart. We could never obey God perfectly inside. We could never obey God even in our best days. You know, sun shining, rainbows in the sky. We could never obey God perfectly. But Jesus Christ came and willingly shed real blood, the real blood of the Son of God, to die for our sins, to die for the curse that we brought on ourselves. Jesus Christ died in our place. And that's, that's what Paul's talking about here. I mean, we have you know, this huge statement about the person of Christ. We see he is the head of the body of the church. He came to reconcile people to God. He came to make a new people that know God, that are forgiven for their sins, that have been made at peace with God. He says this final statement, making peace by the blood of the cross. His death brought an end to all the wrath of God that we deserve. You, know, you think about all these wars that we experience, or you think about like all of these, um, you know, even wars going on today, and you're like, how is peace going to happen? I mean, the, the biggest war that has ever happened has been between your soul and God. Because you would not have God for your Savior unless God acted for you. Unless God sent His Son, and His Son took the blow for your sin. Because He loves you. And so that's, we have this peace now. We have peace with God. God actually comes and not only shakes our hand, says, you know, no more, no more anger, no more, no more fear. But He actually takes us and sits us down at the table with Him. That we become sons and daughters of the living God. We become a part of God's family. We're no longer enemies with Him. We're now family. Like that, because of what God has done in Jesus. I mean, that just kind of like, <laughs> I don't know about you, it just kind of blows my mind that the Creator would send His Son through whom He created everything and this creation that has rejected the Son and rejected God is the Son that He sends to redeem and reconcile creation to Himself. I mean, it's just this crazy drama. That's, you know, who would have thought of this story? You know, and we all see this sort of, you know, this Messiah figure, this redemption figure. We see this all the time. I mean, this isn't like a new, th I mean, this is, is a crazy story, but we, we always kind of, we gravitate towards somebody, somebody doing something in our place, somebody doing something to 
to reconcile us or to make things right. We have Iron Man and Captain America. They are putting themselves out there and laying themselves on the line. Uh, in many cases, almost dying to save the world. You know, it's kind of a standard story. You have Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. You have Neo in The Matrix. You know, they're laying down their lives. Um, but we also see this in other areas. You see this in politics. There's always, you know, there's whoever the politician is on either side, there's always a sense of like, oh, he's going to change things, and finally things are going to be better. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat. It's always the same. You know, you have that in, uh, you have it, all the, I mean, it's, what was it, um, I'm sure you're going to hear stories um, about how people have acted heroically in the stuff with Paris, but you just had that recently, um, somebody, you know, a guy tackling a guy, uh, tackling a, a terrorist in the, in the subway station and getting basically all kind of chewed up doing that, because he was laying his life down. To save other people. That's what Jesus is doing. He is the ultimate example of that. Laying his life down. The blood of the cross. He did not have to give his life for us. But that's what he has done. So that we would be reconciled and made at peace with God. So the, the reality is that Jesus is himself the reverse of the curse. And I know that this is. This is all kind of. Man it's all big. And like how does. How does this change my life? What does this do? How does this make things different? So, and like I was saying, this is not just like pure theology that Paul's doing. Like, here, let me tell you about some, you know, really great theology that doesn't really change how you live. Doesn't change things. I mean, maybe it kind of, it makes things make a little bit more sense. But how does this actually, like, in the nitty-gritty of your daily life tomorrow or the next day or tonight, how does this change everything? So, like I was saying, this is the central passage of the book of Colossians. And the application that Paul draws out from this, I, let me just do, I, I can do a quick scan through the book and just kind of say, Paul applies this passage, these things that we're talking about here, he applies it to ministry, how we serve other people, what does it mean to serve not only in the church, but to serve our neighborhood, what does that, what does that mean, how do we do that? He applies that to ministry, he applies this passage to Christian growth. He applies this passage to how being judgmental of other people. He applies this passage to what it means to grow in, like Bill was asking, praying for holiness. What does it mean to pray for holiness? What does it mean to stop doing those, habitually, those habitual sins that I just can't keep from doing? And I'm not talking like, you know, going out and doing like wildly crazy things, but just being like angry or being jealous. Or, you know, saying sla- you know slanderous things against your coworker, like Paul takes this passage and applies it to that. He applies it to marriage. He applies it to parenting. He applies it to work relationships and how we think about work. He applies it to our prayer life, and he applies it. He applies it to how churches partner together. So Paul, in this book, he takes this huge passage. It seems kind of like out there, and he applies it to all these things. And as I, and as I've been thinking about this passage, um, I've, I've actually been thinking about my own, my own life in relation to the category of anger. Just think about what does anger look like in my own life? Like, it's not directly in this passage, but Paul's going to go on and talk about it. But just to kind of think through, so just think through my own struggle of, of anger, let me just kind of, I want to kind of lay this one out, and we can apply this passage to my own struggle with anger. 
And uh, if you guys benefit, this is kind of like self-counseling from the pulpit, I guess. But, <laughs> but, you know, it's so, you know, I don't know, for me, anger's not like I'm just kind of like a walking rageaholic sort of thing. Uh, I don't, I'm not like, you know, angry, like yelling, screaming all the time. I think I'll probably like yell occasionally in the house. But I think for me, anger just tends to be like this low-grade, just frustration with things not going the way I want them to be, you know, expectations that aren't met, things that aren't, you know, done the way I want them to happen, like, you know, the house getting clean in a certain way or, you know, the kids breaking something or uh, people not doing what I want them to do or things not happening the way I want or not being recognized the way I would like to be or people, you know, just general things of, like, things just make me angry, you know, like, it just a low-grade frustration with things not going my way, and I just kind of, like, huff about, and it's kind of, you know, just, it's not, like, a major, like, boil over, but just, you know, a dissatisfaction and just kind of, like, a, a humdrum sort of thing. But, so let's take that category of anger. So that's kind of what anger looks like for Jacob. So anger is kind of low-grade frustration right below the surface, dissatisfaction with the world around me. I could do it better. If everybody did it my way, things would be a lot better. So let's take that and let's apply this passage to that anger. So verse 17 says, In him, in Jesus, all things hold together. Everything is under Jesus' authority. Everything belongs to Jesus. Everything is in a continual relationship to Jesus. So, when I'm getting angry about something, I'm getting angry at the way Jesus has set up the world. The way Jesus is ruling and governing the world right now. I, it begins to kind of put my anger in a different category. Anger is, my way would be best. And if this passage is true, that means, but Jesus, my will versus Jesus' reality. It's just, it's not just that I'm getting angry, it's that I'm getting angry at the way Jesus has set things up. So it's, it's making it more personal now, right? It's not just kind of like, I tend to think about like anger, like, oh, I'm angry. Like, it's just kind of the way things go. Uh, I'll, I'll forget about it when I go to sleep and wake up tomorrow. Like, no, this is, I'm angry at the way Jesus has set things up. Now, there is a category that I, I'm not going to address tonight, but there is a category of, of righteous anger and righteous indignation. When, when you're the victim of, of sin of any kind, there's a certain kind of anger there that God, God actually gives voice to in the Psalms. So when you're the victim of abuse or violence, God actually gives voice to that in the Psalms. So I'm not trying to say like, no a- anger is always bad. So just so you, you hear what I'm saying, I'm talking about like the normal anger of, of everyday life, I think. Uh, but if, if that's a category for you where you've been the, you've been the victim of something, uh, I don't want you to hear me saying like, oh, you just kind of have to suck it up. Now the Bible actually gives a voice to the, the uh, righteous anger, and we can, we can talk about that later. But that, so I'm just wanting to hear you. I'm, I'm not addressing that stuff, but... So my, my low-grade anger is a rejection of verse 17. In him, all things hold together. And so 
then to take it a step further, in verse 20 he says, In Christ God was reconciling to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, my anger is a violation of God's law, and it's offense against God himself. And it's not just something that's just going to be brushed under the rug. Like, oh, I've now accused God of setting up the world wrong, and now I'm frustrated. It's not like God's just going to be like, oh, okay, Jacob, I know you're a nice guy. I'm going to forgive this. No, my anger comes out of a rejection of God himself. And that just can't be dealt with lightly. He says in verse 20, so that he reconciles to himself all things, which includes my angry heart against the way God has set things up. And he makes peace by the blood of his cross. So it's Jesus who bears the curse, who bears the punishment that my anger deserves, so that I can be forgiven of rejecting the way God has set things up rejecting the things that I am opposed to, the way God has set things up. Jesus sees my breach with God, and he makes a bridge. He, makes, he does away with my rejection of God through his blood on the cross. So instead of God justly condemning me, he reconciles me through Jesus. God, who has every right to be angry at my sin, actually pours out his anger on Jesus for my anger against God. Does that make sense? I'm going with that. So my anger isn't just kind of a rejection of God. God's anger actually is justified. Mine is not. And God pours out his anger on Jesus in my place. See, this, this is like, like not, like this is not the normal way that we think of through these categories, but this is, I think, the way the gospel walks us through understanding our own hearts and how Jesus changes us. But that's not where Paul leaves us here. So, in verse 18, I think he actually kind of completes the circle there. So, verse 18, Paul says, And he is the head of the body of the church. And Jesus, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then everything, he might be preeminent. So, this is a lofty phrase, but what this means is that Everything that's true about Jesus is true about me in Jesus. So yes, I have a heart that's angry against God, that has rejected God, and Jesus has died for my sin just to deserve for that anger. But then I have hope because Jesus has risen victorious over the grave, and He lives a new life. That that same life might be in me and you and helping us overcome these sinful hearts that we still have our hearts can take courage and growing in grace and growing to be more like Jesus because the life that Jesus has over Satan, sin, and death is true about us. And certainly like a tree become, like a seed becomes a tree, we become more like Jesus, not before His return, not this side of death, but we will increasingly grow to be more like Him, putting to death these sinful hearts, growing to bear fruit for His name, growing to bear fruit to glorify Him, to be more like Him. You see, that, that's how you, you would take these passages that are like just kind of these huge, like these massive truths. You have to walk your heart through them so that you see that these truths that are about Jesus and what they expose about your own heart, you have to kind of walk them through in the details. God, forgive me for my anger against Michelle for this. Jesus died in my place. God, I now receive Your grace and forgiveness through Jesus. And now... 
because of who Jesus is, I receive your grace for growth and holiness to be more like him. So that's how, and there's a big passage, but that's how we, we take it down in the details of our lives. So we're going we're gonna to close, we're going to finish with verse 21 through 23, and what Paul does is he takes this huge, he does what we, we've just did. He takes this huge passage that's all about Jesus, that may, has personal application, and he takes it down into the personal application. So you, you'll notice almost immediately when we start reading it that he goes from So you see how he's going from Christ now to you, down to the very personal. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister." You see, Jesus, he gets personal. He comes down and he doesn't just want to save us and cleanse us, but he actually wants us to see the face of God himself, to know God personally. You see, we, uh, his accomplishment gives stability for our joy because his, his accomplishment is the only road to knowing God himself, to seeing God face to face. As we rest in Christ's work, we're, we will see God face to face. You see, and His intention is for us to be holy and blameless and above reproach before Him because those are all things that apart from Christ are not true about our lives. We are not holy without Jesus. We're not blameless without Jesus. We're not above reproach before Him without Jesus. It doesn't matter how, much, how many accountability partners you have. It doesn't matter how much you strive to do the right things. It doesn't matter how much you pay your taxes on time. It is only in Jesus Christ that we have the right to stand before God Himself. But what, what Paul says here is not like, I think maybe a question that we could come away with this and asking is like, okay, so Jesus has done all these things and now I can just kind of like sit back and not worry about things or sit back and just kind of not do anything. No, actually, the grace that saves you is the same grace that enables you to follow and obey and trust and live lives that glorify God Himself. So it's not just kind of like, just sit back and do nothing. The grace that comes in and gives you life, now actually, you actually are living. You walk around. You grow and change and become more like Jesus. You live lives that bear fruit. You know, like a seed that gets planted in the ground actually grows up to bear fruit this grace that God has given you in Jesus Christ is totally free. There's nothing you do to deserve it. But it actually changes you to live lives to glorify Jesus. And so that's what Paul is saying here in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Through the command, the call, you have to keep following this grace that's in you. You must continue to work with that grace. It is grace-dependent responsibility. Jerry Bridges has this little phrase of talking about sanctification as grace-dependent responsibility. I, just, I think it's a great way to remember it because it's responsibility, but it depends on grace. You, you, can't you, you don't depend on the amount of times you prayed. It doesn't depend on how often you've been to church. It doesn't depend on how nice you've been today. 
It doesn't depend on how many Hail Marys you've prayed. It doesn't depend on how the Pope's doing. It doesn't depend on how your family is doing right now. It depends on Jesus Christ, who has died for you and risen from the grave and sits right now at the Father's right hand. It rests in Him. And so the grace that you need is secured and free, but you must depend on it and then actively work with your responsibility to grow and become more like Jesus. See, this great and glorious reality actually has real impact in your life. It really, you must grow and, and cultivate and stir this. So, I mean, I know this sounds great, but what does that mean? So what are the things that you can do for doing that? I think they're really simple. I, I don't think they're really difficult things to think of. Get to know Jesus. Read, read your Bible. Hear the voice of God. When you read, when you read the Bible... Just in your mind, imagine it is God's face behind these pages speaking those words to you. There's power in the Scriptures to change you, to be more like Jesus, to convict you, to cut your heart, to grow you, to know Him and love Him more. Specifically, learn the Gospel. We've been talking about it now. But learn the Gospel to rehearse it to your soul. What has God done in my behalf? What has God done to save me and change me? I'd recommend The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. Just to, I mean, it's like, I don't know, 80 pages. It's really simple. Being in good worship. Worshiping with good songs. Singing good truths about God. You know, actually, in, in the original language, the, the verse 15 through 20, this is actually, it's in the style of a hymn. Like, this actually could have been an, an early church hymn that they sang. So, we've actually been reading and preaching from a song in some ways tonight. You know, pray for spiritual gifts. I think that God wants to, I mean, 1 Corinthians 14, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts that you may encourage one another. I mean, we're going to encourage each other the more we have spiritual gifts. Pray for prophetic gifts. Pray for tongues. Pray for healing. I think those are all things that we should expect from the, from the Scriptures. We should expect to encourage our souls to know God more. Receive the Lord's Supper together. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. It's, it's, a, it's a way of remembering and enjoying Jesus Christ in the Gospel. His broken body for us. His shed blood for our behalf. That we might know and be friends and a part of God's family. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.